0: then we'll pray and see what the Lord has to say to us. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning... And we thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have spoken to our hearts through your word. The book of Romans says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so, Father, as we have heard, we pray that you would cause our souls, our hearts and minds to grow. May we increase in strength to do your will. And may we lay aside every burden every struggle, every hindrance every encumbrance that would prevent us slow us down distract us from following the Lord Jesus we thank you that the way of salvation is simple you modeled it in the Old Testament those who had sinned And we have all sinned brought a sacrifice to the temple and the sacrifice took the place of the sinner and the sacrifice died having never done anything wrong for the one who did wrong the act of substitution the act of bringing the animal by faith meant that the sinner could walk away clean and that you would be satisfied because this is your way. You gave us Jesus, a perfect man, your son, fully God, that he would stand in our place, take our sin, and that we would be cleansed when we put our faith and trust in him. And Father, you are satisfied. You smile over the life of every Christian because this is your plan and your way. That's how you made it. Father, we lift up this time to you. We ask that you would transform and change our hearts as we hear you. That we would seek to have our church led in a way that's consistent with your will. And in a way that when the world sees the church, though they refuse to believe the foolishness of the gospel Paul's words not mine they might look at the character of leadership they might see the church growing into the image of Christ and that they would say those are people who love each other and that they would know by looking that we are your disciples we pray that, Lord, because that's the test that you laid out for the church, for the world to evaluate it. We ask that you bless our time in your word now and that you would help us commit to change and to grow into your likeness. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, Anyone who knows anything about what's going on in the news right now knows that it's an intensely testy, debatable, dangerous thing to uh, choose a leader, right? Uh, How much money and energy and time is being devoted to convince you that this one from column A is a better choice than this one from column B? How much... Money and time and energy are being devoted by those in column B's team to destroying the person in column A. Uh, So much energy and time being devoted to installing the leader of our nation. I I heard the other day, your phone is here. No, that's fine. You want me to text them back and tell them? Okay. Um, My wife left her phone up here. I, I often text her. Uh, when she leaves, and I then hear the sound of the phone go off in the other room, and I'm like, oh, I'll just send me a bunch of messages. And sometimes I, I, I haven't done it yet, but I want to answer me from your phone. Yeah. I love you too. You're the greatest, Keith. Anyway, uh, we, uh, we don't spend a whole lot of time, though we, we, we've spent a lot of time as a society debating which leader would be better there's a tremendous lack of focus on uh, exactly what kind of leader do we need exactly what should this leader be like what should their character and their heart be like i think if we compare two men in the bible as we begin that that we can see a A distinct difference between kinds of leaders and that'll lead us to to the ethics of the leader that Paul says should lead the church. You look in the opening chapters of the scriptures and you see Adam the first man, the father of of all men. Our spiritual leader. The Bible says that we're all born into Adam's race, right? Adam sinned and we all died. And then a second man, a second Adam comes along, the Lord Jesus. And he leads in a distinctly different way. Just as Adam underwent temptation in the garden, Jesus underwent temptation in the wilderness. And where Adam failed, and we all failed, Jesus succeeded. As a leader, Adam embraced passivity. He refused to take responsibility and did not lead courageously. Jesus, on the other hand, when you look at his leadership, he embraces activity. He rejects passivity. He accepts responsibility for what he is called to do, how he is called to lead in the times that he's called to lead. He leads courageously, and he perseveres joyously. Think about what Jesus did. He refused to to bow or to cave to the temptation presented to him by the serpent. Adam stood by and allowed his wife to engage and to be drawn away from the truth when he had heard the commands of God spoken to him from God's mouth to his ears, but they did not reach his heart. Jesus instead rejects the temptations of Satan, moves into action, places himself in harm's way to rescue his bride, even at the cost of his own life where Adam did not accept responsibility. He he abdicated responsibility for leadership to his wife and then chose to blame her and blame God. You'll notice if you look at Genesis chapter 3, when when God says, where are you? What have you done? He says, the woman you gave me gave to me and I ate. Right? It's not only her fault, it's your fault. You're the one who, Who made her. My wife and I will often jibe each other when one of our children have done something wrong. We'll say, your son did this, you know, and it's 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 the game of pushing off the responsibility. Jesus instead looks around and sees a world in shambles. The need for someone to be a savior. And instead of waiting for someone to do something, he makes an arrangement with his father. The father and the son make a promise to one another to save the world, and he comes, takes humanity upon himself, Enters into the world and takes on the form but not the nature of sinful flesh. He does not become a sinner. He becomes a perfect man. He takes the form of a servant. He goes to the cross and he takes the sins of the world upon himself. He knew what he had to do and he did it. That's the good news, by the way, is that Jesus has accomplished for us as a leader what our Father by nature refused to do. Jesus takes the responsibility and going to the cross he earns salvation by becoming our substitute. If we put our faith and trust in him, our sins go on him and we receive his righteousness and it's his righteousness that saves us. We're we're transferred out of Adam's family and into the family of Jesus. Colossians puts it this way, it says, we have uh, been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus led courageously. Adam didn't tangle with the big fanged apple offering lie, telling God, hating doubt, instilling devil-possessed serpent. But Jesus does. He seeks him out. Adam caved but Jesus leaps into action defies sin and the devil endured through every temptation ever thrown at him refused to be diverted from the cross think about it he'd never done anything wrong never he never deserved to be punished Not once, and yet he took the punishment for all sins. This is courage and the accepting of responsibility. But finally he perseveres joyously. Adam blamed his inaction and his irresponsibility on his wife. Jesus didn't look at the odds or the obstacles, but instead, and don't don't hear what I'm not saying, as a real man, and he was a real man, fully God and fully man. We can look to Jesus, by the way, as an example for our behavior. We might say, well, you know, he was perfect, he was God. Yeah, he was fully God, but he was fully man. And he didn't live according to the power of his own divine nature when when he was on the earth. He lived in dependence on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says go up into the wilderness, he does. The Spirit says heal this one, he does. He lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he doesn't look at, at the difficulties or, or the pain or the suffering. Instead, he trusts in the promises and the plan of God over and over again. He says, I don't come to do my will with the will of Him who sent me. He, he gives me a cup to drink and I choose to drink it. Is there any other way we can accomplish your will, Father, other than me drinking this cup? No? Fine then, I will. And he goes to the cross. He doesn't have every single fact of what's going to happen but he knows instead who he trusts in. He trusts the character of God. The command of the scriptures tells us to imitate this one and not the other. Hebrews 12, 1-2 says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's, He's to be our goal. Listen, Eisenhower, Reagan, Washington, Right? Churchill these may all be good examples but none of them are set out as the the destination or the epitome of character for the christian they may, they may suffice and serve in one area or another, but Jesus himself is the only one who is put out there as the clear example of who we ought to imitate, the destination, the goal of our character. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the example of Of the leader that we need. That's the example of what it means to be a leader. Jesus influences us. He demonstrates for us what our character and our life ought to be like. Instead of just listing out a job description of functions, we are given an example of the heart of a leader and how he leads. Paul is describing men like this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. Now, Jesus is perfect in his very nature. Even in his human nature, he is perfect. And no leader of the church should be expected to be that perfect. They will mess up. In fact, that's one of the key tests, I believe, of a leader. What happens when they mess up? Are they repentant? Are they proud and arrogant when they mess up? Jesus was perfect, but the twelve whom he called were imperfect. They are given the, the power of the Spirit to call the bride of Jesus into existence. But they didn't hold that power to themselves or use it to their own advantage, but instead they, they passed on what they learned to others so that the mission of the church could continue. I just want to I want to look at 1 Peter. And, uh, and, and point something out I'm going off script usually I have these, these, these punched right into the outline so that I can, I can find them this is what, what Peter says think about this this is the first guy this is the lead guy the guy who, who led the church in Jerusalem and who eventually had to pass the church the torch to others he says this i exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of christ did you hear that peter of all guys could say i am the guy right I'm, i'm the guy who who was right there with jesus and who jesus said feed my sheep and and i'm saying that i'm i'm a fellow elder with you elders I'm a witness of the sufferings of Jesus as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And then he says, shepherd the flock that is among you. Exercising oversight. So he's saying, saying, be a leader. But then he's saying, not under compulsion, but willingly. Don't do it because you're forced to. Do it because you love it. Do it as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Do you see that? It's It's not the job description that's key. It's not the job description that's first. It's character that's first. We'll talk about that in a moment as well. Paul says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Think of the implications of that for the way the local church should be structured and the way that we ought to view our mission and ministry in the church. If Paul was in his 60s at this time, that would have been a very old man for that culture if you're in your 40s over in Zambia where, where I travel every summer to teach like that's considered old because of the, the life expectancy if somebody makes it to 40 they're, they're, they're older Paul may have been in his 60s and he was training Timothy and saying don't let them despise you because of, their, of your youth that might mean that Timothy was 40 or 30 or even 20 if, if he was 40, then the faithful men that he would be teaching would either be his age or younger. Maybe older, but his age or, or younger. So, so maybe they're in their 20s. Notice the, the passing of the torch. The things which you've heard from me, you, Timothy, from me, Paul, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also so so Paul at 60 down to Timothy who's 40 down to others who are faithful men who are 20 to others also perhaps people who've not even been born or who are just crawling around the church there needs to be a sense of of, of having a farm team here of leaders right of, of cultivating strong character so that, so that when it comes time for the church to be led we're not like looking around and saying who do we develop but instead said to say who have we developed it's funny because every now and again someone will say oh that kid you know he's a handful right and I say that's what people used to say about me when I was four at First Baptist Church in Union like that guy might be your pastor someday, or somebody else's pastor. And it's your job to make sure that, that, they, that they go this way or that way, to, to shepherd and guide them along and to teach them what the truth is. Right? As new little ones come into the church, we ought to be thinking and, and praying, these are the present and future of the church. And not just assign them the job of like sweeping up around the church, like and and and, and pulling weeds and stuff. Pulling weeds is, is probably part of leadership in somebody's definition. I, I think that I think that it's a it's a it's a good starting step. Are they willing to do the hard work at times? But but they people people ought to understand that, that we ought to consult the young at times and say, what do you think about this? I'll tell you what, I had an opportunity to teach teen Sunday school this morning. They're sharp kids they know, they know the word they're learning it are we we thinking of them as leaders among their peers and giving them and trying to impart to them the skills that they need in order to lead others So, so as a church we ought to be praying for leaders in the present but we also ought to be praying for those who will grow into leadership who are amongst us right now those whom the Lord has given us by, by birth and by, by time in the church. And we ought to be praying that they hold true to the faith, that they hold firm to the Savior, and that they grow in the Lord into the pattern that he has set out for leadership. What did Jesus do? He called a large group of followers to follow him people flocked after him, and then he chose from among them those who would be close to him, and then when he left, he made them the leaders. It is a perfectly natural thing for a church to find leaders within itself and to grow its own leaders from within. Some of whom will be the kids who've grown up among them. God is looking for people who are of a character that submit their, their will and their ways to Him. And those are the ones that He will work through. Second Chronicles 16, 9 says this, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. God begins with the heart, and so we ought to as well. So so, part of the call this morning, an action step if you 're like, so what do I do with this message i would I would write this down if you're if you 're writing down notes if you're if you 're taking them pray for future leadership pray, pray that the spirit would enable us to discern who it is that we need to call right now but also so, so pray for that and also pray for future leadership that that when there is need in a year in 3 years in 5 years to call additional leaders for our church that God would be raising them up from within us. It's an amazing thing in Acts chapter 13 when you when you look at that text that that there were six fully trained a diverse group ethnically leaders some gentiles some jews at the church in antioch there are six guys fully trained and god takes two of them and sends them off one of the reasons why it's good to have lots and lots of godly trained leaders is that god can then say hey i'm going to take some of them from you and do something with them if you've got more leaders you have more mission you've got more capacity for that mission One of the reasons why, uh, going to Acts chapter 13, again, why we ask the church to pray for who God is calling to lead the church is that the Holy Spirit himself speaks in Acts chapter 13 and tells the church, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the ministry to which I have called them. Paul and Barnabas knew that they were called and the Holy Spirit, when the church is gathered together and is praying, the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, they are called, set them apart. And so there is this double confirmation there. We'll see that in just a second in First in Timothy, if I can give, ever get out of the intro here. We move to 1 Timothy, and this is the the elder section of the behavior section of 1 Timothy. Paul is telling everyone how they're to behave in different areas, no matter matter who they are. If you're an elder, you're to, to live this way. And then he'll move on to deacons. Notice the list that he's going to give here is character more than skills. Skills can be taught, but character is hard to change. Men and women of the church, is that your goal? To have a character that God would commend? A character that's consistent with the will and the way of the Lord? What is the difference in the Bible between David and Saul? Do, do they... Does one of them have a perfect life? Does one of them not mess up at all? No, they they both mess up and they mess up seriously. But David's character is consistently right in the eyes of the Lord because of his response to his circumstances. Saul hides Saul runs. Saul proudly and arrogantly defies others. But David, when confronted with his sin, or when confronted with an opportunity to make a choice, chooses the godly option. And so we see in Saul's life, because the character is wrong, everything about his kingship goes wrong. And with David, because his character is right, and his character is right because he depends on the Lord, Everything goes right. Now there does come a time when he sins in such a way that his kingdom knows nothing until it ends of, except, except war. But even when confronted with his sin with Bathsheba, David repents in the proper way. The Lord is, is looking through the earth for those who have hearts that are completely his. And those are the people whom he will strongly support. So let's look at the character section here. First Timothy three, one through seven. Paul says this. It's a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. It is good if you desire the work of eldership. Okay? So so this is the way that the, the, the process works, right? Can I be an elder? Right? The answer is yes. Yes, if, right? If the character is consistent with, with the list here. Yes, if you, if you model this character for us, but, but you've got to want the job. Does that make sense? Shepherd the flock, not under compulsion, but willingly, Peter said. The overseer has to want the job. Sometimes people are like, oh, you want this? Hmm... Their motives must be suspect if they want it. No, Paul says it's a good thing to want it. It's a good thing. This is part of the reason why when we nominate leaders for, for the office of eldership, one of the things is going to say, you know, have you discussed it with this person? Because if they say, absolutely not, I don't want to do this, we don't want to be trying to draft them and force them to do it. It's a good thing for someone to want it, and they need to want it. They have to have the motivation to do it. Second, Paul discusses the the character of an overseer. It says that an overseer then must be above reproach. Verse verse 2, this is his character. This applies to the observable conduct of the elder. The way that this leader lives their life should be unstained. We should be able to ask their neighbors and their co-workers and their kids even, unless their kids are, are currently grounded, right, you know, if the leader has just had to apply discipline and take phones away or something, probably not the best time because you'll find out that they're the meanest, rottenest, most horrible parents in the world. Um, they're, they're, you sh- we should be able to ask neighbors, coworkers, kids and their spouse, what's wrong with them? What, what areas of their life do they have consistent, willful sin patterns? The answer should be like, nothing really comes to mind. Now, does this mean that there'll never be any sin in their history? Absolutely not. They're human beings. There's no way that it's possible for a human being to live without sinning. That's, that's just... It, we, we sin because we have a fallen nature. But the clutching and holding on to willed sin, that ought not be there. They ought, to, they ought to be above reproach. They ought to have unstained character and observable conduct. What about the elder's marriage And his mind he should be the husband of one wife this literally means a one woman man it would be easy to look at this passage in the English and to say this means that an elder should never have been divorced but that's not only one that isolates the grammar of the passage but it sets the bar too low did you hear that never been divorced sets the bar too low Because there are people who could say, I am married and have never been divorced, and yet they are not one-woman men. Because they are not maintaining and focusing their proper attentions on their home, on their wife, on her growth, and on on, on providing security and a sense of being cherished. A man of one-woman is not a man... Who has been married one time but a man who is fully devoted to his one woman now we can have the discussion about what a divorce means but I think that it should be taken by the church on a case-by-case basis because many times something happens before someone is saved before they even know the gospel In any case, that's a discussion that can be had. A one woman man knows that there are other fish in the sea. But this man knows that God has provided all that he needs in the fish which God has provided him. He does not flirt with other fish. (laughs) He doesn't watch other fish on the beach. He doesn't look at fish on his computer or watch documentaries, in quotes about fish on cable. He fights for the purity of his mind. He keeps his hands free from sin, and his marriage is sacred and undefiled. One translation of this phrase is rendered this way. He must be faithful to his wife. Think about what Paul will say with his regard to the elder's responsibility to his own home. If he does not know how to lead his own home, how will he lead the family of God? If a man cannot cherish his own wife, how can he cherish the church, which is the wife of Christ? If he cannot handle this responsibility properly, how will he handle that responsibility? Paul moves on to the elder's self-control. He describes him as temperate, prudent, and respectable. We tend to think of King David as someone who lacked self-control because of the well-told story of what happened between him and Bathsheba, but I don't believe that that's a good characterization of the man. When David fled from Jerusalem, after Absalom, his son drove him out trying to take his kingdom a man named Shimei cursed at David and threw rocks at him. One of David's men, I believe it was, this guy's got an awesome name, Etai the Gittite. I think that's who it was. Isn't that a great name? You Think back, like, Mom, you know, biblical names, like Etai, right? That's a cool name. Or maybe not. You would get made fun of, right, in school. Uh, this, this man, a Tells David, he says, I will go and I will cut off his head for you, if you like. You know, David was still the king, even if he was running from his life, from the military coup. And David had the power as king to end this man's life, but he said no. No, perhaps God had appointed this man to throw rocks at him, to humble him in the midst of this circumstance. And he said, I am content to take the insults if they are supposed to be from God. This is self-control. On his victorious return to Jerusalem, David again encountered this man and yet again did not take his life. Think again that twice, twice, David handed, or God handed Saul into David's hand, where that's what circumstances would have led him to believe, that, that, that Saul was within reach. David had, the, the ability to cut off a portion of Saul's robe, right? That means he was close enough to take that sword and to stick it right in Saul's back. And there is Saul in the cave relieving himself with his back to David. And there's David standing there, maybe pressing his men back in the dark. And David's men are doing what? Pushing him like, it's time. It's time, right? That, if they were ever going to write like a David musical, that'd probably be an interesting number, right? Right? <laughs> You know? I am not going to sing, although I'm feeling the urge. <laughs> that is not from the spirit, that is from the flesh. Um, David had the opportunity to become king, but he was waiting for the Lord to make him king. A good word to use here to describe self control this character is meek. Meek rhymes with weak, but that's not what it means. The definition of meek offered by one scholar is that it endures injury with patience and without resentment. Strength is good, but control of strength is better. What does the the proverb say? That one who controls himself is better than one who controls a city. What should the elder's ministry look like? One who would be an elder ought to be hospitable. The elder should have a reputation for sharing his life as well as sharing the word of god we 're not specifically focused just on knowledge and uh, not knowledge of the truth or the ability to communicate the truth, but the idea that, that this leader shares his life romans 12 thirteen says that Christians are to practice hospitality. By the way, this word for practicing is the same word that shows up in other places as persecute. Isn't that interesting? I used to, uh, back up in in, in New Jersey, I would visit a friend, a fellow pastor. This guy's name was Paul Abbott. Go to this guy's house, and he was so hospitable, like you started to feel guilty for being in his house. It It wasn't his fault. It was like uh, do I do this for people? He'd always be like, "Would you like something cold to drink?" You know, and then he'd bring you something cold to drink, a nice glass. You know, put it on a coaster, and then after a couple of minutes, "Would you like something to eat?" Would you? You know, are you comfortable there? Are you? Can we, you want to move into another room? You know, turn the fan on. It's just he was always concerned about how you felt, and, and you would start to feel like I feel guilty, like I've got all this guy's attention, but he made you feel like you were. Welcomed and not just welcomed, but he was concerned about your well-being from moment to moment. He opened his life and his resources to me. That's the way that an elder should be. They've got time to spend on you. They also should be able to teach. First Timothy. Sorry, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 2. Paul says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The elders should be able to explain the basics of the faith and correct error in doctrine. Uh, My friend Billy who pastors down in Florida now, says that a Christian man ought to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. So uh, the leaders of crew called and said, hey, can you come and speak next Thursday? And I walked in there, and the leader um, came up to me and said, I'm sorry that, uh, that we didn't give you much time to prepare to come. And I was like, a week? Like Billy's standard is preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. Like, a week? That's, that feels like an eternity. You know? We ought to, we ought to be ready and able to speak when the time comes what about the elders temperament the verse here verse 3 says not addicted to wine or pugnacious but gentle peaceable free from the love of money the culture of the early church was was a roman culture that was its context where you had men of great power, and great ability, and great uh, exploits with women, and also great wine consumption. It was a wine-soaked culture, according to one scholar. And so the character quality that's, that's mentioned here, not addicted to wine, is not apt to wine, or another way of saying it is not too long at wine. The culture was so tempting and wine-soaked that Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 not to get drunk at the Lord's table. Just keep filling up the cup and keep passing it, right? I'm wondering if this is when somebody was like, I have an idea. Let us, let us, this is Brother Welch, you know. Brother Welch is like, let us use grape juice. (laughs) And forever we will trip up the pastor when he's like, Jesus gave bread and wine, and I just feel this internal compulsion to constantly say, it's juice, folks, it's juice. We use juice under here, right? Just so nobody's nervous. Self-control means not being mastered by any substance. Don't be drunk with wine, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. And he says, don't be pugnacious. Aren't we thankful that we have this image of these little yappy barky dogs, right? Constantly fighting about everything. That's not to be the elder's role either. The elder should be free from being controlled by any substance. Alcohol, tobacco, drugs, food, porn, money, anything free from that control, right? Free to to live in the power and the way of the Spirit. I love this. There's a saying that says, if a man is drunk on wine, you'll throw him out of the church. But if a man is drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon. (laughs) Money is a dangerous trap for church leaders as well. And it's a poor gauge of church health and success It's a tempting obsession for the church. Freedom from the love of money allows leaders of the church to trust God and to look to Him to meet the needs of the church. What about the condition of the elder's home? He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then he gives the example of a man who does not know how to manage his own household well. How will he take care of the church of God? He ought to have a well-run home. There ought to be evidence that the elder is at home, right? not always nose to the grindstone, working, 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 that the home gets his attention, that the small church, as Martin Luther called it, the Kleine Kirche, that's the fancy German way of saying it, the tiny church of the home, of which he has been appointed pastor by nature, right? not by the common consent of the church, but that he has been, he's been appointed by his life role to be the pastor of that church, that he is doing his job. And that that is the foundation. He's to keep his house under control with all dignity. right? That does not mean that every single person in the household has to be perfectly behaved all the time. But it does mean that the, that the style and the consistent character of the home should be one that is not wild. Think here, echo back to, to the character of Eli's sons. Also, this is an area which later in life David did not do well in. It says that he did not rebuke or restrain his sons, and they lived raucous, wild lives. Finally, there ought to be no, second to finally, there ought to be some consistent display of obedience. Verse 6 says that he ought not to be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. There's a phrase that says that discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. The the fire of the heart of the elder ought to burn brightly and properly. Hype, the hype of a new convert, emotional hype, word hype, is like newspaper. It burns brightly but quick. It takes time to get a real true fire going. And so faithfulness... Trust is something that can be given in a moment and can be validated, right, over a short period of time. But faithfulness is something that can only be demonstrated over a long period of time. And someone who's not a new convert is someone who has demonstrated that they they have a history of devotion. Their heart is a long, steady blaze. Finally, the reputation he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Falling into reproach in the church means that the out, outside life, the exterior life, stains the interior life of the church because of improper business dealings outside, because of, of, a, of a swindling business nature, let's say. Or, or of a character where, where there is a, a double life. This is the way you are in the world and then this is the way that you are on the church. I'd heard someone say once that, that the entire uh, church experiences a conversion on Sunday morning as they walk into the building, right? Faces change. Character changes. The life ought to be consistent and authentic. Perfection not required. But a long devotion and obedience in the right direction. And so next week, as we put into the bulletin that we're looking for who you see as the elders of the church, the question is this who who has got the ability, yes, to explain the basics of the Christian faith and to and to to take up the care and feeding of the saints? by taking up the office of leadership, but it has to be founded on a heart that is devoted to the Lord. It has to be founded on a heart that is humble. It has to be founded on a heart that knows that it needs Jesus and one that is striving to look like Jesus, depending on him and walking in faith. Let's pray and close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to and to speak this word. I pray that you would care for lead, guide, and shepherd our church. Father, you have brought us to this new place where we live now, and you have given us leaders who are stepping up father we are we are thankful for that as we seek to fill Uh, our our leadership position of of elder over the next couple months as we close out 2016 and, and look forward to the future. Father, I pray that you would show us who it is that you are calling to lead the church. I pray that you would show us, Father, who possesses the character, not absolute moral perfection, but the character of hearts that are sold out for you, following you. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to their hearts as well and that they would know that they are being called. And then, Father, I pray that that you would prepare them for the work. It can be daunting and at times discouraging but to see hearts and minds changed and to see the church growing into your image is incredibly rewarding. So, Father, I pray that you would would start us off by giving us this image in 1 Timothy of the goal. But I pray that you you would help us and teach us to ask, to come before you humbly dependent and to say, Who would you have us be led by? And then I pray that you would speak and guide. We pray this, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.